Chapter 11 of Look to the Stars. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Look to the Stars by Willard E. Hawkins. Chapter 11. McGrew, who as a rule evinced little interest in matters beyond eating, sleeping, and following the feminine members of the party with pig-like calculating eyes, was the one who made the discovery. He had climbed to the observation scaffold and peeped idly through the periscope. His yell of dismay reverberated through the interior of the vessel. We're gonna hit the moon, he shouted as the others scrambled into view. Marlin gained the platform. What's the idea? he demanded sharply. We aren't within a million miles of the moon. MacGruder gulped, gesturing toward the periscope. Marlin remained glued to the instrument until Duchesne cut it roughly. Give someone else a chance. What's out there? Marlin relinquished his post. His voice sounded unnaturally strained. See for yourself. It did look like a shrunken version of the old familiar moon, a glimmering disk shining brilliantly against the inky blackness of space. We're approaching a solar body of some sort, Marling told the others, who had straddled up to the platform. His eyes inadvertently sought peril. Maybe this is the answer to... He broke off. Duchesne straightened from the eyepiece. Two to one, it means a cock-up, he commented, unless Eli knows how to guide the she-bank, and I don't believe he does. Nevertheless, they reported the approaching crisis to the inventor. Eli had grown more eccentric as the voyage continued. His hair and beard were wilder. He talked incoherently. When he had assured himself that they were actually approaching a stellar body, he displayed a great deal of energy, rushing from periscope to control room and back again. And they had no way of knowing the result of this activity, and received scant satisfaction for his impatient responses to questions. My private opinion, Marlin observed later, is that his instruments have no more control over this vessel than if we'd left them in that pit back on Earth. All connections must have burned out in that incredible burst of power that hurled us into space. But at least Eli made a great show of adjusting his switches and levers. Whether he planned to effect a landing or was trying to avoid the approaching body was a secret locked in his own dome-like head. In time, this new menace became commonplace, and life lapsed into its dull routine, with Marlin alone spending a great deal of time observing their progress toward the stellar body. On one occasion, Peril paid him one of her infrequent visits. He looked up as the girl climbed from the ladder. Better run along, he said abruptly. It's considered bad medicine for you to chin with me. She stepped beside him and cocked her head on one side, 
for all the world like a bird listening for a worm. It is so lonely, she said yearningly. You? Lonely? He repeated in surprise. Didn't know you ever felt that way. With a suggestion of impatience, she touched the bulging crust of clay surrounding the original entrance hall. So lonely, she insisted. Please, let it out. Not quite sure of her meaning, he picked up a crowbar and tapped the hardened crust. This seemed to be what she desired, for she stood aside expectantly. Cracking the surface, he dislodged the section and allowed the gummy interior substance to flow out. The girl smiled her pleasure, then kept both hands over the soft mass, working them below the surface almost lovingly. So lonely, she murmured in a crooning voice. When she withdrew her hands, smeared with the gummy exudation, she held a small lamp of some kind in her palms. As she rubbed the clay away, Marlin saw with a start that it was a dead field mouse. This was one of the numerous creatures that had been enmeshed in the sticky clay, he realized. But how had the girl known it was there? Close to the surface, at this point? Better throw it into the incinerator, he advised gently. Nasty thing, dead. Shrinking from his outstretched hand, she cuddled the mire-covered little body to her breast and almost furtively skipped down the ladder. She had cleaned the bedraggled little corpse and was still cuddling it happily when Marlin descended to obtain his share of the meager rations. He was struck by the Madonna-like expression of the girl's features. Wonderful, the mother instinct, he reflected. Wonderful, yet sometimes pitiful. Duchesne stared as he took his packing box seat at the table. Where'd the kid get that? Never you mind bristled more. She can keep it if she wants to. What's harm it doing? I'd like to know. Duchesne sniffed the air as if in anticipation. About this time tomorrow, if there is such a thing, you'll need no urging. If there's any stink more potent than an overripe rodent, I'd hate to find out about it. How does it happen? demanded Sally, that the staff out there didn't act the way it does when we throw things away. That's a thought, Duchesne agreed. Whatever we throw away, the cell digests, tin cans, refuse, scraps. But this, he shrugged, just one of those freakish accidents, I suppose. The strange aftermath was that when they gathered for another meal, after the usual sleep period, the mouse was standing in its tiny hind legs, daintingly nibbling crumbs from Peril's hand. This thing gets more uncanny, Duchesne growled. We were wondering how the staff came to leave the critter intact. 
Now we find that it knows the difference between inert objects and those potentially alive. Not only that, but it seems to know how to keep the creatures in suspended animation. You talked as if the ship was something alive, observed Sally sharply. It's quite possible, Marlin suggested, to conceive of chemicals in the clay which attack that tissue, but to which live cells are resistant. Intelligent chemicals? That's a hot one, retorted the girl. Marlin eyed her calmly. It's not so far-fetched. I can name one chemical right off the bat, just plain water. Put that vegetation in a damp spot and it decays. Life vegetation draws nourishment and thrives under the same condition. McGruder eyed with distaste the slender rations set out before him, then glanced up longingly at the enclosing sphere. There must be a mess of them dead animals out in that clay. I wouldn't mind having a little fresh meat, even if it was only a chipmunk. The suggestion was received apathetically, but Marlin found himself reflecting that this might offer a not impossible solution for their food problems, presuming that they survived the dwindling stack of canned provisions. End of chapter 11